0: Good morning, Creekside. I'm Andrew Naffin. I'm a member here at Creekside, and um, I'll, I'll be uh, getting to, to share with you together the, the scripture and the word today. Boy, that song will preach, won't it? I mean, that is incredible. Um, what what amazing hope um, that we have in the season of Advent. It's it really captures, I think, um, what was going on in the life of Israel in the first century as they are anticipating the coming of the Messiah. Um, That song does an amazing, amazing job of capturing that. Um, It's funny, even the the little quick false start that we had there um, with the music almost captures what's going on at that time in Israel as well in a really neat way that everybody's got this anticipation of something that's coming. And there were a few little false starts um, before Christ came as well um, in that time of waiting. We're going to be looking today at uh, Luke chapter 1, verses 67 through 79. And um, what we're going to be looking at is a song. We've been kind of over this Advent season looking at some of the songs that are there in the the book of Luke um, at the beginning. And... The song is given by Zechariah. Now, what's interesting about Zechariah is um, previous to this, an angel had visited him. He um, challenged the angel, basically, on his claims, on his promises that he was giving to Zechariah. And as a result, um, Gabriel, I think, was a little fed up at that point um, and said, you know what, you're going to be mute um, until this actually is fulfilled and this actually takes place. And the passage we're going to be looking at today is after months and months and months of being mute, and there's a good case for arguing that he would also have been deaf as well, as we look at some of the text in there, um, that he suddenly, his tongue is loosed, he's able to speak, um, and he gives a song of praise at that point in time. I've been identifying with Zechariah the last day or two in the sense of, uh, I lost my voice kind of yesterday morning. And uh, it's coming back a little bit right now, but uh, that, uh, that being mute, uh, I'm really identifying with him at the moment. So keep me in your prayers as I'm going through and I'm um, sharing the word today. Let's go ahead and pray um, before we get rolling here. Heavenly Father, um, God, we just pray that your spirit would be here. Uh, we know that it is. We just uh, pray that you would work through your spirit, um, as we, as we read through your, your scripture here, Lord, through your word, we pray that you would um, open our eyes to the things that you are doing. Um, Father, that we would see you rightly. Uh, we would see your son and uh, that our hope in him and what he has done and, and the things to come as well um, would just be strengthened as well. So uh, we pray, that you, pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. All right. Now, it's interesting. um, I gave just a smidge of background there for Zachariah and what was kind of taking place. This song, when he gives it, um, the way that it kind of lays it out in Luke is that he's at his son's uh, naming ceremony and circumcision ceremony as well. Um, And there's a lot of people there. There's nothing that brings people together like a circumcision party, you know? Uh, So... This song uh, has been used in the church, actually, for ages. Uh, It's called, it's a Latin name, it's called the Benedictus, and as we've kind of seen, Randy mentioned this last week when he was preaching as well, that they grab often, kind of as they're doing Latin naming things, um, they'll grab the first word that's there, and that's going to be the name of it. So the first word of this song is actually blessing, which is Benedictus, that's where it comes from. Um, the church has used it since probably the 3rd or 4th century. I thought, hey, maybe we could all today could teach you how to sing the song in Latin. But I don't know Latin and I don't know how to sing, so I thought that would be a bad direction to go. Um, this song, though, is a, a song of praise. It's filled with praise just straight out of the gate. Praise, thanksgiving, um, and expressing kind of the deep joy and anticipation that Israel's been waiting for for ages, ages and ages. I'm going to do four um, kind of major points today that I'm going to try to touch down on. Um, First off is that God always keeps his promises. God is mighty to save. This here, this passage captures a rescue from and a rescue for for worship without fear. And then the last one that we're gonna talk about is the sunrise from on high. There's this neat passage there um, right toward the end of the song, and we wanna get into that talking about what is that all about and what does that mean. Um, we've got enough time today. I was back and forth whether to do this, but I wanna give you a little bit of historical context going into this. Um, more so than maybe I I normally would. Do we have any, like, history buffs here today? I enjoy history. Okay, there's a few hands up there. So I'm going to give you just a quick little snapshot, and uh, I want to show you where Israel's been at leading up to this point. We're all familiar with the fact that Israel went into captivity um, when the Assyrian Empire comes through, and they take them over. And God allows that to happen due to their disobedience or idolatry. So that happens um, about 570 years or so um, previous to the events that we're going to be learning about today. Then Judah, the leftover part of Israel that's there, the kingdom had split into two. The leftover group of people that's there, they also do idolatry and things. God allows another uh, nation to come in and take them over, and the Babylonian Empire comes, and they kind of wash over the Assyrian Empire and basically take them over, and so they go into exile. And the prophet said like, hey, someday you will come back from exile, my presence will be there, I will forgive your sins. And so the Jews, as they're in exile, are waiting this time that's gonna happen, when they're gonna be able to return from exile, and eventually, That happens. So again, we're going to spend a little more time in in historical kind of context here. The Persian Empire takes over the Babylonian Empire. And then eventually the the Persian Empire lets the Jews go back to Jerusalem and and rebuild the temple. And so the Jews are thrilled about this. This is incredible. This is what we've been waiting for all this time. And as they return, we read about this in the kind of the last books of the, the Old Testament, and Nehemiah, and Ezra, um, they do return, and they have this return from exile, but something is still not right. The things that were prophesied by Isaiah, by Jeremiah, as they kind of go through the rebuilding of the temple, there's still this sense of of living in where, where the sins have not been forgiven in the way that had been prophesied. There's this anticlimactic sense that, like, something is still not right. We're still somehow, even though we're back in the land, we're still living in exile. And we, talked about, we sang that just a minute ago in that song there, that there's a sense of that. Now, there's 400 more years, basically, that come after this point, after the close of the Old Testament, and it is anything but silent as far as geopolitical events go, world events but there's no prophecy, there's no like, wow, God is speaking and acting and doing things, and so it's just left to hang. And people are waiting, they're wondering, when is God going to act? So next comes things like Alexander the Great, and he wipes through the whole area and conquers everything. I mean, we've all heard about that. So lots of things happening there. You know, we look at, after that, his general split everything up into a bunch of pieces for his empire, And Israel and Judah, they're right in the middle of all of this happening, just being cut up like so many pieces of a pie over and over again. Eventually, the Jews revolt. They've had enough of this paganism happening in in, in Israel, and they revolt, and they actually overthrow the foreign rulers that are there, and that's great for a little period of time. And then Rome comes right through and takes over the whole area again um, with Pompey. And that leads us up to kind of the time of this. And so the reason I mention all of that is is a few things here. Um, One, the land is like a powder keg. There is just so much pent-up frustration that there's foreign rulers, that the promises of God that they've been waiting for for so long have not happened yet. They've not been fulfilled. And there's been all these kind of misstarts as they've tried to bring the kingdom of God into play through their own power. And yet still, there's foreign rulers here. All is not right. They're still anticipating the Messiah, and they're looking for him in a lot of different ways. I don't know if any of you have ever felt that way, where you feel like you read God's promises, and you feel like God is being silent, that God has not acted, and you're waiting and waiting. When is this gonna happen? And maybe you've tried your own ways of like putting into play and bringing God's promises into play um, in ways that are maybe not God's ways. God is silent for 400 years with people saying, how long, O Lord? But then God acts. He acts in a powerful way. And in, in, I give the the historical context in some ways because I want to I want to emphasize that when we read the Bible this is not a collection of spiritual truisms of spiritual principles the Bible is God's recounting of his action in space and time as he acts to fix the issue of sin and of death and of evil and so The Bible is about real events and real history happening in space and time. And to me, that's incredibly encouraging. Okay, so that's a little bit of a lengthy context that brings us to where we're at today. I'd like to read the passage together. Uh, Let's go ahead and stand. We're in Luke chapter 1, and we're going to start in verse 67, and we'll read our way down through in the forgiveness of their sins, because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of peace. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. I'm going to have to keep getting water as we go through this here. It's interesting um, in this passage, um, this passage has so much more to do about Jesus than it does about John. So even though the setting is John's naming ceremony and his circumcision ceremony, which is kind of a covenant type ceremony that the Jews would have done to remember actually that covenant that was just mentioned in that passage, It's really not about John. And I think we find that the Bible in general is this way, right? It's not about Noah so much. It's not about Samson so much. It's not about Jonah so much. The Bible is about Jesus and it's about who he is and what God has planned from the beginning to do through him to address the issue of evil in the world and evil within his people. John, it's interesting, had this time of reflection, deep, deep reflection, which I think can be a a gift sometimes. Um, Often the trials that God puts us through are nothing that we would ever choose. Um, If you asked, would we ever have wanted that to happen about some of the hardest times or most difficult things that have happened in our lives, I imagine most of you would say, no, I wish that had not happened. But the things that God taught me during that time, I wouldn't trade for anything. Um, we, uh, uh, we were at the men's breakfast uh, yesterday morning, and this kind of came up as this theme over and over again that uh, people were sharing just things that God had uh, allowed to happen in their lives um, and what God had taught them through these, these sorts of things, that God uses sometimes suffering um, for his purposes. And I think this happens with John, similar to the way that Israel had been in silence for 400 years. John, there's a parallel here as well, where John has to sit in silence. And the first thing that he does is he, does, he responds in praise and worship um, when he really does see God. <clears throat> Zechariah at the beginning here blessed be the God the Lord God of Israel for he has visited and redeemed his people this is verse 68 this is it this is the thing that Israel has been waiting for all these ages and Zechariah sees it now it's interesting we don't have more detail on this but Mary um, we were just you know learning from last week Mary comes and visits Zechariah's wife Elizabeth and stays with them and you have to wonder like what were those conversations about i'm sure there's this growing sense of like oh my goodness something is happening here this is it this is this is the thing that we've all been waiting for <clears throat> it's a, it's arrived at last god's visitation has come and he is coming to rescue and redeem his people Now, sometimes I think our culture, whether it's through things like social media, Facebook, and things like that, you know, you look at everybody else and their perfect pictures and what they're doing and everything their lives all put together, I think sometimes we ask ourselves, am I really worth it, right? The culture challenges us, are you really worth that over and over again in various ways, through the various ways that we're actually marketed to, are you worth it? If you buy these things, you will be. When we look at the manger, that is God's definitive yes that you are. That he sent his son for us and that we are worth it. That his people are worth rescuing and redeeming. And this is a work that he does. So that's something I think to hang our hats on. Anytime that we have that self-doubt in any way, Jesus has come to redeem us so as we're in this advent series, you know, this this advent time and Christmas time, don't let the the cuteness of the baby Jesus and the manger, the the baby angels that are going to come up here for for plays and things like that, don't let that deceive you to the reality of like the weightiness of what's happening here of God's rescue. God is Mighty to save. Let's look down at verses 69 here. It says, And he has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David, as he spoke by the mouth of his prophets from of old, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us. What is salvation? I mean, this word is used just all the time. We constantly hear it. Um, It's a very interesting word that's there. And I think up front, one of the things that we need to kind of like clear the air on is that it would not have meant then, and we need to be careful not to allow it to become to mean now, that salvation means going to heaven when you die, that would not have been on Zechariah's radar, and we need to be very careful about the way that we use the term and understand the term, not to use it just in that sense. It's a much bigger term, much more robust. It's a Hebrew term that, that's used. Um, not to say that it does not include those things, but we need to be careful about minimizing the full power of what God is doing. Horn of salvation is another weird word, They're coupling these two together. This is a very Hebrew way of saying God's mighty deliverance. Uh, horn is you know, going to be the business end of a powerful animal and would often be used throughout the Old Testament over and over again to describe God's um, power in saving his people. And he would use it in terms often in kind of these regal, royal senses many times. So, as God would be describing his king, King David, he might be describing, or he might be describing the coming king. Um, We'll see verses in the Old Testament that use it in that way. Salvation is always going to be a rescue. You're being saved from something My voice is on the fritz there just a little bit. All right. So one of the things with salvation, with rescue, is that the initiative always comes from God's side. If you look back through the Old Testament, if you look back through the New Testament and the way it describes the work of Christ, the action comes from God's side. He is the one taking the initiative, not us taking the initiative to go find God and seek him out. In those cases where we do, because some of you, I'm sure this is your testimony, right? That, boy, you went to pursue God and seek after him, and he were, you found him. And that is true. But I think what we find often is we find at the end of that journey that God had been coming and finding us and pursuing us before we ever started, ever thought to start that journey um, far, far before that. There's a commentator here, Philip Ryken. He has a great quote that I wanted to share with you. He says, It's not something we achieve by going to God, but something God has done by coming to us in Christ. No one is ever saved except by the grace of God. I thought That was a wonderful, wonderful quote. In verse 69, it talks about, In the house of his servant David, now, we've spent time, as we were going um, earlier this year, we went through, for Samuel, we spent some time talking about King David. We went through Psalm 23, and that was an r- amazing study that actually applies in a lot of ways to this. But I want to like focus on that, that from the line of David there, from his servant David. If you look at 2 Samuel, we're going to go back to the Old Testament here for a minute. So we'll go to 2 Samuel, chapter 7, verses 12 and 13. It says, When your days are fulfilled, this is God speaking um, through the prophet Nathan, when your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body, And I will establish his kingdom, and he shall build a house for my name. And that's temple-building language there. Um, Kings were known for building temples. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Jesus actually has an interesting line that he uses later um, toward the end of his ministries in Jerusalem. And they're looking at the great temple that was rebuilt there at that point in time, and Jesus says, basically, that he, this will be torn down and he'll rebuild it in three days. Right? He's making an interesting allusion, actually, to temple building, and that as the true King, that he was, he is the true King that rebuilds the true temple, which is fascinating. So there's this looking forward to whoever the, from the line of David is going to be coming. Um, someday the Messiah is going to have some connection with the line of David, that he will be the true king and his kingdom isn't gonna be a one and done. It's gonna be something that when that shows up finally, when it finally happens, it'll go on and continue forever and it won't be overthrown by Alexander the Great. It won't be overthrown thrown by Rome over and over again and I think we'll see the different kind of kingdom that Jesus is setting up verse 71 says we're saved from our enemies and all who hate us who are these who are all who hate us there's different answers here that would be given by people probably in the first century, but I imagine the one that would come quickest to mind would be Rome. Obviously, they're all over the place. You can't go anywhere without seeing pagan idolatry in the streets on every single corner. Like systematic idolatry all the way through the whole country. This is on everybody's mind. Now, we have the benefit, in a way, of looking backwards through time and seeing that Jesus had something else in mind when he talks about who your enemies are. I'm not not, uh, discounting that there is a physical reality to God's kingdom as well. There totally is, and that's part of why I started with the historical context. But there's a spiritual reality as well that Jesus really focuses in on that sin and evil and death, these spiritual realities, are really the enemies that have been plaguing the people of God all along. And the enemies are not always without. Sometimes they are, but they're also within the people themselves. And We see this all the way through the Old Testament. So God is coming to address that as well. As Jesus addresses this issue that he has to keep talking about all the way through his enemies, through his ministry. Who who are your enemies? He talks about this a lot. Think about the Sermon on the Mount, where Jesus, when he talks about enemies, has a very different approach. He says, love your enemies, pray for those who persecute you. He talks about blessed are the peacemakers, and these things didn't make Jesus super popular. So as Israel's reading, rescue us, deliver us from our enemies, uh, often they're, they're putting their hope in the wrong things there. There's a lot of expectations that around the type of Messiah that Jesus would be when he came to rescue them from their enemies. Um, and as time went on in Jesus' ministry, opposition rose more and more and more towards him for the messiahship that he was presenting them. It was not the messiah that they had had in mind. The oppression that they had experienced over and over through the, the hundreds of years, Israel had in mind a very specific type of messiah that they wanted to have come. And it had to do with geopolitical rescue, power, overthrow. And so as we get toward the end of Jesus' ministry, and he's saying things like, blessed are the peacemakers, love those who hate you, as he says things like, give to Caesar what is Caesar's, and to God what is God. You started seeing these bumper stickers so show up you know, on the back of all of the camels riding around, you know? Not my Messiah, right? <laughs> <laughs> This is something we all have to be careful with, I think. of uh, We have to be careful about the, the version of Jesus that we're beginning to create in, in our minds as we read, even through the scriptures. We have to be careful that we don't begin to redesign God in our own image, but that we allow, as we read the Bible, as we read the scripture, that we allow Jesus' challenging words that were challenging in the first century to the Jews of that day, to challenge us as well, and to let him be who he is, and his, his incredible kingdom that he is in the process of bringing forth, that we allow that to challenge ourselves as we go as well. If you choose to follow Jesus, he will radically reorient your views on yourself, on your enemies, on your friends, on spirituality, On politics, on your work, on retirement. Jesus is coming, and he has in his kingdom a view of restoration and rescue that I think is far different than anything that we would come up with on our own. Let's move down to verse 72. Read 72 through 75 here. It says, To show the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath he swore to our father Abraham to grant us that we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all of our days. The oath there... Um, This oath to Abraham, I mean, made way back, his promise, his covenant that he made to Abraham is that someday Israel would dwell in the land, that through Israel God would bless all the nations of the world, um, something that was lost sight of from time to time. It's important for us to remember as we go through the Old Testament, because it's such a big book, that there is no plan B, that God has been working one plan from the beginning, and that that plan is unfolding as time goes on. It's not often on our timeline we want God to act more quickly, um, and maybe you feel that today as you look forward to uh, the second coming, you know, when Christ comes again um, and puts kind of the finality on his plans there. The general resurrection happens and all things are renewed. But God is faithful to his commitments. He's always been faithful to his commitments. We see that, it's it's one of the wonderful things about this time of Advent. Advent is reflecting on this every year, over and over and over again, remembering and calling back to the fact that God has been faithful, that he has decisively acted in Jesus. Salvation is a rescue from something, and we talked a little bit about that, of sin and death and of evil, but salvation is also a rescue for something as well. And we need to think about that time, uh, that that aspect of it, I think. Um, We see it in Zechariah here, as he responds to God's salvation in his own life, as he becomes face-to-face to to the reality of who God is, and his response is in worship. And that ought to be our response as well. I think any of us who who have been rescued by God, um, and, and this comes to greater clarity whether you've been in the faith for 80 years or you've uh, been in the faith for, for six months that God's rescue of you in your life as he, as he redeems you from a way of living and a way of thinking um, as he forgives your sins that, that leads to worship and that's right we as, we as human beings are made to worship God it's not a forced thing, but when we begin to see who God is and see who, what he's rescuing us from within ourselves, we can't help but worship God, and that's good and right to do. And it's neat to see us every Sunday be able to do that together um, in a group setting like this, um, and to do that individually as well as we drive on our commutes to work and things like that to be able to worship the Lord. There's a lot of stuff in here, and I'm, I've had to be <laughs> selective on uh, which, which things we dive down deep into, and so there's a lot of, lot of fun stuff that we're, we're moving quickly through, I know. Um, let's see here. All right, let's, let's read verse 76. Let's go there. Spend a little time looking at John for just a moment. 76 says, And you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High, and you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation to his people in the forgiveness of their sins. John uh, is kind of considered, the the Bible talks about him as the last prophet of the the Old Testament period, before the coming of the Holy Spirit, um, when that's poured out. The, the beginning of this whole passage that we're looking at, Zechariah, it actually says it's prophecy as well. So even though John is kind of the, the capstone of that, time, that prophetic time, um, Zechariah is actually one of the first voices in the opening of the New Testament to have prophecy to hear from the word of the Lord. But in both cases, both with John and with Zechariah, they are proclaiming salvation. And in Jesus, we have our salvation. I mean, it's gotta be fascinating to, for John to look at Jesus, who was his cousin, his younger cousin, but to totally give way when Christ comes and to acknowledge that he was the Messiah. I mean, it was just absolutely clear of John's glorifying Christ um, as Christ came. In Jesus, the enslaving power of sin is overthrown through his work on the cross and his victory over death. So it talks here about salvation to his people, the forgiveness of the sins. We have this benefit now of living in a time after these events have happened and being able to look back on it clearly Um, we had a fun uh, discussion at our, our men's Bible study um, the other day, or our men's breakfast the other day, and we were talking um, about, you know, if we had been there in the first century, how would we have responded to the Messiah's coming? There's a good chance that we would have totally got this wrong, that we would have been had a very different view of who the Messiah ought to be, that we would have challenged Jesus' view of the Messiah potentially. Um, and and I think we can be very grateful that we live in a time and an era um, where the Holy Spirit has come and that he has brought us to faith um, through his work. And that we get to look back on some of these events that have decisively happened through Jesus um, with, with this view. I think sometimes we long to be in the first century, to be right there where the action was at. Um, and I think... Sometimes we wouldn't be happy with what we asked for if we were, were actually in that moment. Let's look at Ephesians chapter 2 verses one through 10. it talks about the salvation to his people and the forgiveness of sins. This is just such a wonderful passage that encapsulates so much of this. Ephesians. Chapter 2, verses 1, and I'll read a little ways through here. This is Paul writing um, to the church in Ephesus, and he says, You were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work, and the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived, in the passions of our flesh, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. The last section here, verses 78 and 79, talks about because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high. And I think that's captured in so many ways. The tenderness of God is is so clear as you read through the Bible. Um, Even as you read through the Old Testament, you sometimes hear that challenge, like, well, what about the God of the Old Testament? Read the Bible. In there, you cannot help, as you read, especially as you read kind of quickly through it, and you see the unfolding story beginning to happen, you know, happen book after book after book. The tenderness of God towards his people. The mercy that he shows is so, so clear. There's a consistency a plan A all the way through. Verse 79 says, To give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of peace. For those of you that were with us when we went through Psalm 23, we talked about walking through the shadow of death. Right, The psalmist talks about that. And here he's touching on this again. He's alluding to the shadow of death and walking through that. Let's look at one last passage. We're going to go over to Isaiah. And Isaiah for the Advent season is an amazing book. If you're looking for something to to be reading through, um, I would highly encourage you to be reading through the book of Isaiah. Just a sense of anticipation and um, what God is going to be doing through Jesus is, is incredible. We're going to go through Isaiah uh, chapter 8, verses 20 through 22. Let's make sure I'm in the right place here. It says, to the teaching and to the testimony. If they will not speak according to this word, it is because they have no dawn they will pass through the land greatly distressed and hungry and when they are hungry they will be enraged and will speak contemptuously against their king and their god and turn their faces upward and they will look to the earth but behold distress and darkness and gloom of anguish and they will be thrust into thick darkness so this is kind of the world that Israel has been living in, they feel this in a very, very strong way for this 400 years period of time. But then jump ahead from a couple of verses here, chapter 9, verse 2, and it says, the people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in the land of deep darkness, on them a light has shined. And I'm not going to jump into it, because I don't want to take away from if uh, anybody else, I don't know, Aaron's going to be preaching next week, um, is using this passage. But we've all heard that verse, for to us a child is born, to us a son is given. That's the immediate preceding section here. Zechariah is calling attention to this, that that time of living in darkness is over that the thing that God is doing now through Jesus is the thing that they've been waiting for all of this time. Go ahead and have the band come up here. Friends, the tip of the spear of God's salvation, and I was talking about how we use that word salvation The tip of the spear with that word salvation is not conquest, but forgiveness. I hope that all of you who have encountered Jesus, that that has been your experience, and I think as you come to know the living Lord, it certainly will be. Sin and death and evil do not have the final say. God's forgiveness in Jesus has come, your past sins don't define you. God's grace and his mercy do. And that's the gospel, right? That we're a bit of a wreck. And I think more so probably than we, we often realize. It's certainly true in my own life. As I, The further in and silence I reflect on my own life, the more of a wreck I realize that I am. But God's grace and his love is far greater than anything that I'd ever anticipated and ever could have hoped for. God is pursuing us with his mercy so that we will turn from sin and death and walk in the light of life. Jesus comes, and he is relentless.